the UK. Broadcasting around the world. Around the world. You're listening to the Mike Drop Club. Hosted by Douglas Hamandiche. Message received. Message received. You do not need to know what you need. What you need. Just engage with the podcast feed. Just engage with the podcast feed. Providing weekly insights into cool stuff we've read, saw, did, or heard about what made us say, wow, eureka, damn, nothing is off limits. If it motivates and inspires you to reach your goals, then it shall be discussed. Featuring guest interviews from high performers and people of influence and weekly awards for the best mic drop moment. This podcast is guaranteed to leave you pumped up for the week ahead. Don't just live life, make life boom. Wow, why saying peeps? Hope you guys are good. Once in a while, when you go fishing and you feel something tugging, tugging at the line, you might catch a great white. And that's what we've done on the Mic Drop Club. We've managed to rail in, reel in Shane Tickle, the magical, extraordinary. CEO, visionary health tech strategist, advocating for patients and healthcare professionals for years and delivering patient-focused software and services. This is a titan in the industry, in the health tech industry. This is one individual of over 20 years of experience running mission-critical software and data companies. So we're honored to welcome Shane to the Mic Drop Club I just want you to tune in and listen to the pearls of wisdom that this guy will drop. Mic drop after mic drop after mic drop. And tune in. He has an exclusive. The embargo will be over. He has an exclusive announcement to make on the Mic Drop Club. So you guys, tune in and enjoy. You know, Shane, straight off the bat, how you doing? How's life treating you? Or how are you treating life? <laughs> well, I'm full on, man. At the moment, I'm. Uh, I've never felt better, stronger, involved in more things. And uh, I was literally just talking uh, before. Uh, you get to an age where you think you suddenly find a bit of clarity. So you know, some people might have. I don't know. Some people might say you're having a midlife crisis. I feel I'm, I'm midlife enlightened. And um, people say, uh, how, are you, how are you involved in all these different things? And I'm kind of like, do you know what? I kind of, I kind of don't know how other people are involved in lots of th- lots more things than they are because I find it kind of just easier. You get older, you get a little bit wiser. I got to be honest, Douglas, a couple of months ago, uh, first time in five years, I took up running when my doctor said don't run anymore. And I thought, well, actually, if I can run on soft stuff, it's not going to hurt my, uh, my, my bones as much. And I'm just a changed man. So I've lost a couple of stone. But the thinking time in the mornings at, at sunrise you know, it's just amazing. And it's like clearing out, it's like clearing out your, your wardrobe of thoughts, whether it's for the day or whether it's things you've been carrying around. So uh, I got to be honest, I'm on fire at a minute. Oh, no, excellent, excellent stuff. So are you a sun gazer? <laughs> Do you want to you want to be out when the sun is at its peak, as it were? No, I like it in the mornings. I love setting off in the dark and, uh, and watching the sun come up. And if it's a clear day, oh my gosh, you know, you've got to run in, probably 40 minutes before and when it arrives and you're sort of deep into your run by that point um you know it's kind of really amazing no that's kudos to you and it's really it's really refreshing to hear because i too get the same sort of feedback in in terms of you're doing too much you're doing too much and um my my rebuttal to that if you can call it rebuttal is all of these are extensions of the same plan of the execution of the same vision which is all about 
transforming people, places, and things. So everything I do is aligned to that vision. And they just, you have to hit things at different angles. And so I don't view, yes, I, I could be tired as well. Um, and sometimes you think, I just stop the clock. But it's, as long as I feel I'm moving in the right direction, which is important. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm a believer of that. I'm a, I'm a firm believer of that um, officer and gentleman moment where you've got the drill sergeant screaming down in your ear and giving you, like, give me 10 more. But that's all I've got, sir. Give me another 20 then. <laughs> you know, I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm a firm believer that we have a lot more capacity. And I think, just think about framing this conversation around technology. Um, if AI is amplifying the human's capabilities, right, we still need to be thinking about what can we do as a human to amplify our physical being as much as we can. Whilst, because if every Earth year that ticks along, that, that ability to go out for a run, that ability to retain information, that ability to, to think co coherently is slowly um, dissipating. And I think for those who can, I think, and looking at you and reading through your, your impressive bio, it's just like, wow. So almost like, you know what? That's on my bucket list. That's on my bucket list. I wish I could do that. If only I could do that. And you're sitting there full grace, having done all of these things, you know, and these are current positions. So I'll repeat, current positions. CEO, founder of Voro Health Technologies. Vice, and I'm not going to say this, founder and CEO of Temple Black Quantum Health Tech. Chair of NHS Frontline Digitization Supplier Forum. Strategic advisor to institution healthcare social care managers. Wow. Ambassador to Academy of Fabulous Stuff. That just the, the name alone just makes me smile. It just, you know, Ambassador to Academy of Fabulous Stuff. Excellent. Coach to CEOs and techs, small to medium enterprises and PLCs. Uh, mentor to NHS Digital Academy, Imperial College and Harvard Medical School co-op. One and two, your, your ally. And I know you're a beautiful ally as well. I like to big up all the allies all the time. You know that walk this walk the the ethical path with us. You know you stand up for anti-racism, anti-bullying, anti-sexism, and activist in health and health and technology industry as well. Honorary lecture, lecturer of College of Contemporary Health. Yeah, and that is in one lifetime, people. Okay, guys, everybody ready? <laughs> Uh, listen, we're all very blessed. Though, listen. I mean, the titles don't, you know, they're very, very kind. But, you know, you, you get you get opportunities. And some of them aren't all grand, you know, they're not all grand things. But I feel very privileged. For my entire life, I've been given knowledge shared by people, whether it is, whether it's school, whether it was books, whether, but when I really started my career, which was at the Portland Hospital for Women and Children in London, um, I thought I went in to be a, a, a computer operator. I thought in the late eighties, computers, healthcare sounds good to me. Turned out I was a shelf stacker. I just used to sh fill the, the the stock up in the different wards and the special care baby units and theaters and stuff. But in all seriousness, I specialized and I didn't train in train, train in buying. And you're buying for a constituent, and whether that is, uh, and we were working with world leading surgeons, whether it's in IVF, obstetrics, gynecology. 
And I had to understand what it was that they needed, whether it was a laparoscope, whether it was a glass syringe, and I had to understand why, and I had to go around the world, not literally, but search the world for the best possible equipment. And they shared their knowledge with me after theatres at eight, nine o'clock at night, I'd go and sit downstairs with them and they'd say, right, we've finished up. Okay, here's why I need a glass syringe when I'm doing an epidural and not a plastic one. And they would share this knowledge willingly. And then later in my life, I was very blessed to go and work at um, uh, some very small companies, a very small four-man company. And we were doing some really tricky software and it really standing on the shoulders of giants here, algorithms for dosing warfarin, which is incredibly complex, dangerous drug. Uh, and we were, we were using it to help with about 170 or 180 different kind of medical um, uh, disciplines and, and, and diseases and, and things. It was just incredible. And we took the same kind of theory and we launched into oncology and rheumatology. And I just knew nothing. I wasn't medically trained in any way, shape or form. And I went to universities, I went to conferences, I sat with doctors, I, I went to their clinics, I sat with them, and they gave of that time freely. And to this day, people still give knowledge freely. So I realized about 20 years ago, the best thing I can do is give that back. So about 20% of everything that I do in my time, at least 20% is giving to, is sharing that knowledge or helping people share that knowledge. And today, I think I've just counted up, I'm a mentor to 11 people. I've just dropped two because um, I have a deal with them. If I'm mentoring you, who are you mentoring? Who are you passing that on to? And sometimes people don't get that. So I, I sort of, okay, well, we'll let it go for now. Excellent, excellent. And uh, the mentoring one got me. Uh, and, and the way you have the rules to to basically pass on the baton to the people you mentor, where does that come from? You know, for people to trust you with knowledge, you know, and knowledge is, we don't take knowledge lightly. Somebody must see something in you. Where do you get this this hunger for for knowledge in the first place. Oh my gosh, that's, that is the word, it's hunger. There is this curiosity as a child, I just remember. I remember probably being six or seven years old in my bedroom uh, and it was a cold house. You know, we had one fire in the living room. I'd be in my bedroom, you could see your breath, you know, there was, this, there was frost on the inside of the, the window. But I was one of those guys who had the torch and a book and mum and dad had said, go to sleep. And I was just curiously away, furious. And I think, the single biggest gift I was given in life was, was to be able to read because your imagination. So I have, I think a lot of people have very vivid imaginations and I do now incredibly to the point where if you tell me something, you know, sometimes things that are too clinical, I'm too, too vivid with and I'm not good with the sight of blood. So, you know, I can make myself queasy almost. It's that powerful. But I think just the curiosity of how does that work? Why do people think like that? And I think my, one of my single biggest interests is people. How do they work? Why do they think that way? How can we make things better? And I think, you know, in all honesty, Douglas, I grew up in a household of love. You know, my father absolutely cherished the ground that we walked on. It wasn't an easy, uh, it wasn't an easy upbringing. I'm not sure anybody's is, you know, there were challenges with it, but, but actually it was just one of love and curiosity and go out and see the world and what else can, can you do with it and what can it do for you? And, and, um, I still have this absolute classic. I don't know if you can see behind me. I mean, my wife thinks I'm nuts. I've got over 500 books there. I've got another five or 600 in another room and I've given 500 away. That's just the books. That's not the online material. And I give loads, I give loads of books away to people as well and recommend them. And, and I, I'm just fascinated to learn it all the time. You're, you're a man of my heart because I'm, I'm the same when it comes to books. I absolutely love them. I, 
if I could have, if I could design a house, it will start with a grand entrance to a library. Before you go see any other room, like Lex Luthor, Superman 1, you know, stacks of books, you know. That to me is just like, it's like heaven. Yes, I do audio books and all the other things just because of my timing. But I'm always, I'm always got a book not too far. Always not too far. Why Nations Fell, The Origins of Power, Prosperity and Poverty. You know, I, I'm constantly at it. You know, um, my journey was, I did not... So, um, I sometimes have several on the go, but I don't like when I do that. I sometimes, it's sometimes necessity and I've lost my book where I put it and I picked up another book. Um, but if I, if I'm focused, I like to, cause I, I, I'm a, a scribbler. So when I, I butcher my books. When I read my books, I write in them. I write in them notes. I write like what I'm thinking and feeling. Because my dad, who was a, was a is a is is a philosopher as well, he done done quite a lot of things in his time. But he told me to be active. He taught me a way of learning. Because I thought when I was young, I can't really learn. I wasn't really reading. I got four sisters, so I never gravitated to reading. Every computer magazines, Ace, Crash, those are things I was reading. But I wasn't reading until. My sister said, okay, if you want to be in our club, you have to start reading what we're reading. <laughs> and so I start reading Sweet Valley High books. <laughs> and I started loving it. And I've been loving, I've been loving reading like, literally e ever since. I think it does give you advantage, um, a distinct advantage, even for mindfulness. That you can't read when you're anxious. You've got to control your breath. You've got to control your heart rate. These are the byproducts that people don't really talk about when just read it's not just reading for the sake of just it's the exercise it's the conscious exercise that that we do for the retainment of information and the fact that you give back which is which is fantastic so you, you'll be mentoring you know so what got you into mentoring what what do you get out of the whole mentoring situation this is weird right? this is weird so mentoring is came to me people just come and say would you be my mentor and I was kind of like, I, I don't feel qualified. They're like, well, can I just talk to you then? And it started off like that, really. And one of the things I want to do, Douglas, and maybe, you know, you're helping me by giving me a little bit of a platform here today. But one of the things I want to start writing about and explaining to people about is some of the things I've learned through mentoring other people. Now, I'm lucky today. I have three mentors. I have one who's 10 years older than me, one who's 15 years older than me, and one who's about 27 years older than me. I mean, I'm so blessed. These are great, great, kind people who, you know, your heart's just warmed by the fact that they think about you and they're there to help. So, I mean, and mentoring isn't, uh, you know, people think it's a discipline you have to do two hours a month and it's not really, it can come and go. And I, I do have a few rules with it that I've learned over time. So firstly, people came to me and they ask you questions like, and, and then what you do, what I've learned to do is create a safe environment like you've created here. And I say, look, first and foremost, if we do this, there's a couple of things between us. It's a bit of a contract, but it's it really, it's an honor. One, it's a, it's a privilege for, for you to share anything with me. You must know that whatever you tell me, I will never share with anybody else. And it can't, you know, business and life isn't separate. So sometimes we blend into, you know, our daily lives. There are some pressures. So whatever you say to me about your life, uh, your work is 
uh, absolutely sacrosanct. And I won't share any of that. Number two, know that the only thing I want for you is good things. So anything that I ask you about, anything I challenge you about, it's only with your success and, and, and kindness, me giving you kindness in mind. That's all it is. And look, let's give it a go. Let's see if we get on. And if we do, that's great. And then it might be we do it for a little while and we take a pause. And it might be for both of us. And I have had that, like I say, with, you know, with 11 of the people I work with, it's an absolute privilege. The other two, it's been a privilege, but I've sort of said, look, do you want to kind of, you know, contribute? You've done really well. Some people, uh, one guy, one guy followed my advice and won about seven million pounds worth of business off it. I'm like, great. You know, it's not just about the money. I mean, I, I, I work with some not for profits, right? And I'm like, you could spend, you know, not, not gift them anything, but they could do some work for you as part of your, um, uh, you know, your, your ESG things kind of, you know, your, your, um, support and, and then nothing's going back. Nothing, no knowledge sharing, what have you. So I kind of create that safe space. And then what you try and do is listen to people. But it's like one of the questions I got really early on, young lady said, right, my big question is this. Have you always been like this? And I was like, well, I, I don't know what you mean. And what she meant was confident. You seem to know, be able to say the right things in the right way. You seem to be able to get your point across. You seem to be able to challenge constructively. And I'm like, no. And the thing I want to get across to people of, of all ages is nobody is born a leader. I don't think people are born confident. Uh, I think challenges create growth as individuals and you know, I've been incredibly insecure. I mean, sometimes even now I get incredibly insecure and nervous, but I try and make it never about me. It's about the mission and it's about the thing I signed up to. In my case with technology and health technology, I signed up to that 25 years ago and it's been my privilege. To, and I, I say to serve, it is my privilege to serve. You might be a CEO, but the best, the best leaders in these books will tell you level five leadership is all about being a servant. And that's my privilege. And I, and I genuinely, you know, my heart sings, I get emotional probably every, every day at some point during the day, I get emotional about why I do this, who I'm doing it for, the feel, the feeling you get from doing it. And also, you know, being candid, you fail every day. If you're pushing the boundaries, you fail. And people was like you were saying before, you know, people say, oh, you're doing too much or whatever. You know, I've run uh, a long distance to try and get to this meeting in time. And I could have gone, oh, I'm too hot. I'm too sweaty. I'm not in the right place. And I'm like, no, I don't want to let Douglas down. Make it happen. And I would, yeah, and, and again, again, studying all the time. I mean, look, I'm even going back. This book I've read 30 years ago, gave this copy to a friend 10 years ago. They've scribbled all over it, given me back. And I'm reading it now, 30 years later. But um, it reminds me because it, it's, that, this one in particular, Mark H. McCormick, you know, started on his own and created a business that was in 160 countries. What they don't teach you at Harvard Business School. It's one of the best books I've ever read. But Harvard Business say the best leadership teams of the best companies get things right about two thirds of the time, about 65% of the time. And you think, wow. So 35% of the time they get it wrong and they're the best, but what do the really good teams do? They talk and they make the next best decision. And that's the thing is quite often we go, oh, we made a decision. Oh God, we thought about it. We've got it. Oh, we haven't quite got it. But if you keep working and communicating and you're, it's about the mission, then for me, it's, uh, that's what keeps me going and keeps me out of my head. I, if I get on stage or like we're doing this now, 
to me, it's not about me. It's about the message. You know, there's a few messages I'd like to get out on on this discussion. And I'd like to, you know, I want to spread the word and get feedback. And I want to learn from what that curiosity thing. What do other people think? No, it's good. It's, it's, it's so beautiful just to hear you just wax lyrical about things that I've been drumming at home for a long, long time. As the platform is the Mic Drop Club. And the Mic Drop Club came about when I was working with young inner city kids as a role model, father figure to them. So they'll come and see me at work. I teach them how to make cups of tea, how to socialize, all this kind of stuff before I got into mental health. And we were thinking about getting out, practicing your voice and, you know, experimenting, debating, all that kind of stuff, you know, because, you know, when you're least educated, you might find health outcomes are diminished. You might find you become more violent because you cannot express yourself. You know, so we thought, let's do podcasts. And this was back in the day. This is how the Mic Drop Club came about. And Obama was um, had that meme when he's dropping the mic. And we were talking in a little, little group of us. I said, look, I said, look, what is your Mic Drop moment? And we defined it ourselves as a collective, as a moment of clarity where you go, aha. It could have been the time you'd left home to, to run away from abusive parents the time you stop taking drugs, the time you decide to enroll for university, it's your mic drop moments. So, Shane, what are your mic drop moments? It's the times you got it, whether in the, in the business mo- world where you just, when all the ducks aligned, all the dominoes fell in the right, right order, thinking, ah, oh, I get it. Whether it's positive or negative, it's only positional, isn't it? Because some, some things can be perceived as positive, let alone, let alone down the line, he said, no, that was the wrong thing. Just when was your aha? Uh-huh, uh, that I see now, I see in, in your professional career. Well, listen, I mean, crikey. I wish you'd give me about a month to think about this one. This is a big question. I mean, uh, my, I always go pretty much with my instincts. And there are two or three probably big moments in my life. Um, but let me talk about the most recent. And it literally has come together in the last few months. So... I'm 53. I've been working since I was 17. That's good at 15. Started working then, actually. But my first proper job at 17. And um, it's taken me till now to have one of those big, I'd say, mic drop moments. So I've had, I think I've had three careers. 25 years, uh, the most pertinent is this health technology. And let me first say, I, I, I consider myself to be a patient and clinician advocate. That's That's my role. How can I make healthcare better that improves people's lives, and how can I make the people who deliver that health and care, how can I make their jobs easier? That's that's my remit every day. It's not about selling technology for technology's sake or transformation. It's about actually getting to the nitty-gritty. And the driver for that was my father. He was very well looked after. He had a blood cancer, which was incurable. And this is back in the 90s. And his hematologists and the people at Christie's Manchester once a year used to look after him and they kept him alive for 10 years. Now today, we kind of think that's okay. But in the early 90s, that was like living with a chronic disease. It was amazing. So we got 10 years out of him um, and his condition uh, flipped to, to it was irrecoverable. And I sensed at the time it was because he hadn't been followed up as disciplined as he would normally, and he'd missed, not he, but things had just flipped. And I think we'd have had him a little bit longer. Anyway, I was a young man, 
his consultant, who I knew very well, rang me up and said, look, Shane, uh, dad's, dad's uh, condition's deteriorated. We are left with a couple of decisions. Now, I'd spent five years working in a women and children's hospital, and I'd seen kids come in with, like, two, three-year-olds come in and have to have leukemia, and I'd seen, you know, people die from all kinds of diseases, but also survive. And my dad was very, you know, he was seven and a half stone, and they said, look, uh, he hasn't got long. Um, we could give him some chemotherapy, and I thought, oh my God, it would just be, it would just be brutal. And I said, well, what's the outcome? Well, he might keep him alive, you know, a few minutes, months longer. I said, well, what if we don't? What if we just give him palliative care? And they said, well, he's probably got, you know, three to six months. And I, you feel at the time that you're giving your permission and support for that to happen. You're actually not. The, doc the doctors are doing is helping you get used to the idea that, you know, there isn't a good outcome from this. This is a way of helping you understand it. So uh, I spent the next six months with my father at his side, um, pretty much at his side and very much the last few weeks and months, sorry, the last few weeks and the last sort of seven days and nights at his side going through everything. And we had 22 agencies involved in his care, I realized afterwards, from acute to community hospices, community nurses, um, all kinds of people, ourselves, the GP, you know, and people supporting my mom through charities and all kinds of things. This was in 1996. And it was such a profound effect on me, but also he was my best friend. It was my greatest privilege to be with him. I washed him, I dressed him, I held him. Um, and after he went, I was just, nothing had um, any kind of meaning for me whatsoever. I couldn't read a newspaper. I couldn't listen to the radio for months. And um, then I sort of thought, okay, what do we want to do here? And it was about a year or so later and I thought, Maybe I can help with healthcare. Maybe I can get rid of this overriding feeling that we could have helped him live a little bit longer. Um, it was about length necessarily, but maybe he could have lived to see his grandchildren born or I don't know. That's so, so profound. And uh, yeah, rest in peace to um, your, your pups. Mic drop for your pups. You know, he, he raised you well because I'm sure through the work that you, you, you've been doing ever since, your prolonging life, your adding value, helping people live a better quality of life. You know, palliative care, I saw on your feed, you know, is so understated. You know, it's, it's one of those environments that, as a clinician I worked in, I was terrified my first time walking into those things. I thought, my heart can't take the pain. But it was the funniest, most loving environment I've ever worked in. But you have to be in there to... To see people doing fantastic work, giving people, you know, grace, dignity, you know, their wishes to um, to to go out well, you know, and yeah, it it, it it did transform me the way I view life, the way I view people as well. So no, I I can see that being so profound on, on yourself, Shane. I mean, I was looking, you know, early in life. Uh, when babies are born, it's mainly a celebration, vastly a celebration. I've had four, you know, I've got four beautiful children. But the end of life, that celebration of life, and I've had the privilege now to be with four loved ones right at their end of life and sit with them for days and nights in different circumstances. And it's the single biggest privilege other than bringing your own children, I think, into the world. And yeah, it has had a profound effect. But from that, that mic drop moment, if you like, that set off what I'm doing now. And I just decided for the mission for my rest of my life is to try and use technology for the best possible reasons. And it still fascinates me. Even today, you know, I did a lecture this morning on implantable technologies, cutting edge stuff, and I still feel an absolute newbie in the room. So, uh, yeah. And, and 
Yeah. How, how, do, how do you reconcile that feeling so, so young and fresh on a subject that's so cutting edge? And, um, you know, sometimes they expect you to geek out and you're, you're, you're equally a fan as you are a student. Absolutely. That's a great, I mean, that's a great way to put it. So look, I got been I mean, four years ago, I decided to change direction a bit because I've been running EPR companies, mission critical companies for 20 years. And I, I wanted to always want to do a lot more, a lot faster. And I was kind of hindered by investors and, and circumstances. So I went, okay, let's just drop that. We'll give that to other people. Now we're going to start and move on. So that's why I created Temple Black because I'm a, I didn't, I don't like titles, but I didn't know I was kind of a health strategist. I can see seven things and go, well, it just makes sense to put them together. And I didn't know that that was a talent. And it wasn't until I was in my mid forties and people go, yeah, people don't normally do that, Shane. That is something that's just a bit unique. So that's when I created Temple Black and went, look, there's a bunch of stuff we could do a bit, bit better here. So that's my strategy company. And I was very privileged to get involved in what is now Varor Health Technologies, which runs uh, one of the Europe's largest real-time databases in London for about 7 million citizens. And what we do is we just take data of all kinds and we normalize it. Because for 25 years, many of us have been trying to integrate and interoperate and use standards. I mean, that's all good, but I do fear we could be another 25 years at it. So it's very privileged to get involved in that. And then more recently, um, I've been, been involved in, in a not-for-profit, which is owned by a charity that does health scores. And it's about your cardiovascular score and, and cancer and falls risk and all kinds of things. All these things are just absolutely fascinating and amazing. But the last four years, I've literally gone back to primary school to learn some of the absolute most basics. And I have worked with geniuses who've been, you know, they are world-class at what they do. They're 20, 25 plus years at it. And I'm gathering all this knowledge and I'm going, right, I kind of know there's something out here we can do, but what is it? And literally in the last four months, it's all come together. And, it, and, and, and this is where I'm kind of at. We have got some, one, some amazing technologies that are here and they exist today that aren't deployed, they aren't sold, they don't get the, the, the shine, the light on them, and people don't understand them. And to me, when I was buying as a, a young man and then selling as a, later in my career, it's the same thing. It's about education. It's about putting forth, it's about listening to what people's needs are. So we call them problems typically, but I often call them opportunities. Opportunities come before that. We listen to what people's needs or difficulties are while they're doing a thing. And then we go, okay, so here are some answers. And what if we did that? Would that make it easier? Well, it might do. Okay, well, what if we iterated? And that to me is what this industry is about. It's about listening, learning, watching. And, and people will tell you when I was in the uh, EPR business, as a CEO, I never really had my own desk or office. I had a desk, but I didn't have an office. And 80% of the time, I was nowhere to be seen because I was on the front line. And I would be in you know, ED departments at midnight or 2 a.m. I'd be in the hospital walking the floors and the wards. I'd be in at 7 a.m. watching people come in because I wanted to understand what isn't written in the books and what you don't get in meeting rooms. I wanted to see it in real life. And as it happened through my own life experiences of family and other people who've, you know, passed away or uh, had chronic diseases, I've seen a lot in, in public sector, private sector, right the way throughout the UK, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, um, and I've traveled a third of the world looking at healthcare as well. And it, to me, it's, it's a privilege to then try and gather all that information and do something with it. So what I've come up with now, which is my fourth venture and the biggest thing I've ever done in my career, we're looking to launch in the new year, is seven pillars, seven components of, a, of an architecture, which is bigger than anything real time that we've got today. And um, that's, that's, if you like, I think the best thing I can contribute to society over the next 10 years. 
is to build the architecture and also to shine a light on the companies. And I am really putting the flag up for British small to medium enterprises. And I'll take a break, Douglas, but I want to talk to you about small to medium enterprises and how we contribute to society and the economics of this country. Oh, excellent. Oh, wow. Wow. In fact, ANDA, that's, that was our, <laughs> that was our peak social media content last week. Um, it is, no, it's excellent. You know, putting, planting your flag, you know, where do you want to plant your flag? You know, when you have probably, you know, 30 years of real productivity left in you, you know, plant that flag early and say, here's where I want to, you know, make my stand on these seven pillars of architecture. Yeah, I'll, I'll be keen. I'll be watching that for keen eye. I'm not going to go into the NTA territory and find out more, but for all you listeners out there, it's going to be big. If Shane is doing it and he can see things, you know, it is going to be big because seven pillars, oh my God, it's going to, I know it's going to interface with so many components of the care um, continuum. That's all I can say. I know that. That's right. We're going to bring it all together. Um, what, what, I, what, what I do want to do is, is, uh, is set out a bit of a stall for British, British small to medium enterprises, if, if you'll indulge me. So I don't know if people are aware. You can, you, so all this stuff is on the National Audit Office website today, and it's live, right? That's where I get my information from. So I don't know if people are aware, but in the private sector, there's about 24, 25 million working people in the UK, and of which 20,000 businesses are what we call large, 32,000-ish, I think it's 32, 34,000, a medium. So that's sort of 250 people plus. 1.2 million businesses employ uh, less than uh, 25 people, the small, small businesses. And they employ 16 million people in the UK today. And the medium and large employ 8 million. So you quite often find that the small to medium enterprises are in the room and they don't have the big brand and they don't have the big balance sheet and therefore they're not given the same credibility. And what I tend to find, what I've decided is, hang on, we need more of a voice because collectively we are very big. Now, one of the roles, if, if I may mention, is Tech UK. In Tech UK, you know, I've been very privileged to be on the Council of the Health and Social Care uh, council for the last four years, which is a voted for, and it's a voluntary position. And you're the members vote. And there's about uh, a thousand members in Tech UK, of which 400 work in health and social care. And I, I don't know quite the split is between small, uh, small and large, but, but I've asked that question. And I put the flag up really for small to medium enterprises for the last few years. And what I'm delighted to say is that this year, so every year uh, we have a council of 25 uh, people from all uh, types of businesses. And it's a privilege to serve on that. Over the last four years, every year we vote for two vice chairs and one chair. And I've been very privileged to be, be a vice chair for the last few years. And that's why I'm involved in uh, chairing the NHS EPR vendors. I did spend two years helping revise and look at the uh, NHS procurement frameworks and did that directly with the, uh, the NHS commercial team. And also we set up a, a group for the consultancies that supply hospitals and um, uh, support EPR vendors as well to name a few. But this year, right now, when this podcast goes out, I will be uh, chair of the Tech UK Health and Social Care Council for 2024. Okay, well guys, done. everybody ready? Well done, well done. And they're going to be drop. mic drops after mic drops, atomic <laughs> mic drops for that, because I, I can't think of anybody more suited to the position, because 
it takes animated individuals. The fact that you were you were a CEO of an EPR company with no desk. I know CEOs of tech companies that hot desk. I know CEOs of tech companies that have a desk in a communal place, i.e. they've nested. It's just in a communal place, right? But you being at the coalface with clinicians, you know, with patients, service users, clients, you know, understanding things. So there's all this thing where I'm a big believer of people that know and people that know about things. And for too long in the health tech space, we've got more people that know about health. And they can get into very senior positions knowing about health, but they don't have a knowing. And the knowing comes from actually doing, you know, it's like they've learned how to swim by reading a book, but never touched the water. You know, you have and yeah, you have a knowing. And I think that that gives you a competitive advantage because you sacrifice your time, your sleep, you know, you could be doing stuff with your family to actually walk that path. And it's it's a lonely walk as a CEO. So you becoming the chair, I salute you, mic drop for you again. You know, it I can't wait for you to turn the dial. Because as we spoke just before we pressed record, guys, you said we were speaking about um, trends for 2024. One thing I, I, I think we both can agree on, the, the dial was going to be turned full throttle, whether or not we like it or not, because AI is coming to pivot and change everything. So some of the, the stats you're talking about, small um, um, enterprises employing more people with AI, that that. Do you think AI is going to change that ratio for for smaller companies, say, for example, um, employing staff that they can actually get away with the mediocre results some staff members do because the pool of real talented, passionate individuals within this space, you know, uh, is diminishing, I would say. It's, you can get somebody on, on payroll that doesn't, have the same level of in, 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 as enthusiasm as you, but AI could get can do the same work, get eighty percent of it right, and you have to make a you have to make the call. You know, you have to make the call. That's the trick, right? So when I was doing algorithms twenty five years ago, before we were talking about AI, and and you know, true AI, I mean, ChatGPT's revolutionised things in the last twelve months. But true AI, how far is it? How far is it away? But it doesn't kind of matter what you call it. Forget the hype. What does it do? And you've hit the nail on the head. It's the eighty percent piece. So when I started in anticoagulation therapy and rheumatology and oncology twenty five years ago. I don't know if people know, but 80% of the reason, and I'm told by some of my, uh, some of my clinical colleagues, I'm underestimating this, but 80, they say sometimes up to 90, 95% of the reason we go out and seek healthcare, i.e. go to the doctors, is actually for reassurance. You know, what's this lump, bump, rash, my child's, you know, not so good, mom's not so good. What is it? And actually 80% of the time, it's okay. It's not that there isn't something going on, but it's in range or it's to be expected or it's normal. And that's where we've got, you know, we've got a backlog of 7 million people on a waiting list. Actually, we don't. But the numbers say that we do. We know, and this is fact, go, go and read and listen to what Sir Jim Mackey has, has published. This is, he's, he's been responsible for that, that list. 50% of the people on that list probably shouldn't be on there. It's just, and I was speaking to another CEO of a wonderfully big multi-billion pound hospital said, you know, our working practices were designed 160 years ago. So we call people back, we put them on lists. 50% of the people should not be on that list. 
for medical uh, surgical. 25% of the people are probably on the list for mental health reasons, but the doctors who are treating medical and surgical things haven't been trained what to do with them. So they say, well, come back and see me in three to six months time. So you could immediately almost get rid of 75% of that list. However, how do we know in any list anywhere in the country who are our most um, important and challenged Patients, who are the ones that are at highest risk? So if we can use AI, and we can use AI to get to the 20%. And the 20% is the 10% that are really curious and the 10% that's really difficult, complex, that our wonderful clinicians, nurses, staff, doctors, professors are trained to work on. So you're right, Douglas, it's getting rid of the... It's wrong to say the mundane because it's not mundane, it's important but if it's done manually, as opposed to being done safely with machine and, and intelligence, then we can relieve the workforce. We can let them focus on the people who are at that highest stage in life that, that last two years or whatever it is. But also, then we can start, you, you said something earlier in this conversation I want to go back to. So one of my biggest passions is social determinants of health. If you, you know, and, and I'm so inspired about why you started this podcast and the mic drop piece, because actually there's so much of our population, no matter where they are, they don't have the best environment or there could be multi-generational reasons why that they have a culture in their family, their, their street, their town, which isn't the, the healthiest, isn't the best, the best opportunities. So we're fighting right so 2023 for me was about okay we'll spend some big money we'll employ some big companies and we'll start to get people out of the hospital quicker because we know maybe 30 to 50 percent of people in hospital shouldn't be there either they're stuck well i'd rather 2024 is more about let's stop them getting into hospital let's predict let's prevent let's let's really keep people out of hospital so that's nothing new shane's not telling you anything that we haven't all been trying to do for several decades but how can we do it at scale when for instance in london well, you have three ICSs with Varroa's data uh, for over eight, 900 GP practices that is used for direct care. That means it's, it's identifiable. The same data is then de-identified for population health. Population health is let's have a look at, for instance, there's, we've just done a, an area in East London. Sorry, we haven't. We've provided data to people who have looked for men, uh, uh, for black and ethnic minority men who haven't had a prostate exam during this age range during this period because of COVID. And hopefully what we can do is predict and prevent uh, prostate cancer. You know, so there are hundreds of examples of this, if not thousands that we can do with the same data. But to me, and, and look, I'm going on a bit, so I do apologize, but this is so important now. I feel for the people, the leaders in NHS, government, treasury, and what have you, because they've all got cycles to go through. You know, one of the recent procurements, very big, it must have started four years ago. Someone came up with an idea, then you've got to build a business case, then you've got to run a procurement, then you've got to make a decision and buy something. And by the time that's happened, you haven't even installed anything yet, it's kind of four years, and things have moved on. And so actually, I think the opportunity, particularly for small to medium enterprises, is agility. And it's not an us versus them. It's not a small versus large. It is actually, and this is a big thing for me in 2024. Number one, I really want to shine a light on those SMEs. 
for two because they're so you know they're so agile they, they they and they're not perfect they're all lacking something somewhere but actually the big companies don't have the agility they don't take the risk and that person you said the guys who hide in businesses i've had it i've seen it in small to medium enterprises you can't really hide big companies you can people can hide i've seen it i've seen it myself they can hide for years they bounce around with new titles never staying quite long enough until they get caught out so with artificial intelligence i mean the opportunities are immense if we're smart with it yeah and i and and, and you're, you're right and just just to continue on the gravy train that we're on in terms of ai um as we take a look at the empowered citizen you know, COVID changed everybody, changed the whole dynamic. We're all expert health consumers now. It's touched us in a way that we cannot see or unsee what we've seen. We, 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 whether, you're, whether you're pro-vaccination or not, or, or not to vaccinate, you've been touched by health. So, and also AI is a consumer-grade application, soft software, piece of kit that anybody can leverage. My, my in-laws in Cumbria, they... Um, I, I, bought, I, bought, I bought her a Amazon Dot about three years ago. An Amazon Dot, a small run, small round one. When she comes down, she's going to be coming down in the next two weeks for Christmas. She misses it. She misses it. And she argues with my, I've got to say it quietly because it can hear. She miss. so when she comes here, she complains that my one doesn't recognize her commands as much as so she's so that companion she's got a complete accent Douglas because that's where yeah. I'm from you know that do you yeah 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 yeah, yeah I'm yeah, from yeah. Westmoreland originally yeah. I'm, I'm Penry <laughs> Penry ah so I'm a bit further south but we Kirk have our Stevens. own language uh, very good yeah. yeah yeah so um yeah so but you've seen this companionship from somebody that was hesitant around technology to somebody that's then embracing um this voice, as it were, for her that talks to her, tells her about the weather, tells her about the news, gives her great recipes, and that combats loneliness. And and when I worked, in, I've been in, in working in mental health for such a long time now that you know some of the social determinants, as you mentioned in there, sit outside of the health panacea, completely out. So if there was a say, I just done a disaster recovery piece for a, a company I'm supporting, SME. Um, disaster recovery document for them and they were talking about what happens if the power power outage or you know active lightning no data so I said okay fine think about this now what happens if we have everything going to cloud we've got no redundancy care will still take place but the social determinants that we are talking about sit outside of health in schools you know your teacher would probably know more about the um, health and well-being of a child than a GP will ever do. Seeing poor Johnny coming in, it would knock knees, you know, looking malnourished, lack of confidence, you know, but where does that data go in? It's nothing to do with health per se, but it's absolutely all to do with health. Housing, as you said, the digital divide is my big push, you know, to ensure that marginalised communities get access to this. Now, the role I do as a counsellor as well as I see it now where during COVID, poor, poor communities got access to a, ta a laptop. Fantastic. So kids can do the work. But it's one laptop between three or four. And then in a post-COVID environment, a lot of the schools took back those laptops, which are already old anyway, which they would end up destroying. But 
their companies that in good faith gave those laptops also took them back. And you're just thinking, and you look at these children thinking, these children got so much potential. You know, they come into the world of tremendous ability. They are born for this time, you know, and yet they don't have access to technology. If they do, they've got, they don't have electricity because their parents are on a, on a meter. You know, that stuff breaks my heart. And I think if we, if we, really, if we can um, do something to really make sure that as a baseline, you know, if I put a wish list out there, if I was a lad in house as a baseline, broadband should be free for everybody at minimum spec because you need that to build infrastructure on top because some of the data sets that we need for marginalized communities, we talk about um, uh, prostate cancer in the black communities and stuff. Well, how are you going to get access to that unique data set? There's a trust issue that's go, that, that's over and beyond health. You know, not everyone is accessible. But if there was a broad um, basis for it, the whole UK has a, a minimum data, a minimum bandwidth for broadband, you can then build on top of that something. So maybe that could be a pillar. Yeah, and if you know, if we can make sure that people have got access to, I mean, a laptop for me is that knowledge, that sharing that I've had my entire life. I mean, it, it that is giving somebody a window to the world of knowledge, you know, and and what beauty can be created by that and shared. So yeah, I'm I'm with you. I'm kind of heartbroken to hear that we've taken those things back because. I, I mean, and I'd love to learn more about the work that you do and the people that you support. And I think of the privilege I've had, particularly to travel the British Isles, but everywhere I've been, as I say, a third of the world, 90% of people want the same things in life. They want to look after their family. They want to see people succeed. They want happiness and they want to love. That's, you know, pretty much it. So it doesn't matter where you are. And I've, I've often, I believed in the distribution of wealth, Douglas. So you know, I come from a very... A uh, gorgeous part of uh, of South Cumbria, it was a county called Westmoreland, that um, is a market town, you know, and there wasn't really poverty, but there wasn't really great wealth, um, but it's certainly not distributed. But I had to leave at the age of 17 for work. Now, I was lucky. I stayed in the UK. I came down to the south of England. Other people my age went all over the world. But um, uh, I believe now... I mean, COVID did something else. It distributed work. But in 2006, seven, I started with my companies by having some people in the office, but a quarter, a quarter of the staff worked from home. So we did, did, we did distribute work. And I believe with British SMEs, as we grow and we invest in them, we can invest in new communities in some of the hardest to reach places. And I've seen this in my own hometown. You know, when big companies came in, wealth grew and prospered, but when they left, they took that prosperity with them as well. So I'd like to see, and my companies that I'm building are about sustainability. I really want to see them transcend me. I'm not one of those people who says, hey, I've had five exits and, and I'm great. I'm like, no, no, I'd like to start something that is going to transcend my lifetime and it's going to give work and, and, and solutions to society. I, and I honestly believe you can have a company that adds value to society and its solutions in health technology. It can be profitable. You can look after people and you can take people with you and you, you can create sustain sustainability to me is about creating good workflows but you're right about the people there's more work and the quality of that work we can raise the bar and, and, and let people stretch themselves and let the machines do some of the some of the more 
easier to do stuff. Yeah, the heavy lifting. So I'm very conscious of your time, Shane. And I, I, like I keep saying, this is a privilege. This is this is a highlight for me. So you have to forgive me for being ultra excited. If we go, if we can project into 2024 very quickly, you know, and and also looking back in terms of what trends were supposed to emerge in 2023, where do you, where do you see the the focus should be on in health? Okay, so I mean, I'm more inclined to talk about where it should be going next year and what we can do about it. But I think there's been a bit of uh, hiatus and stagnation by our government and its lack of ability to decide on things and the challenges we've got with finances. And we've seen money disappear because they, you know, we're saying, oh, we've got to pay for the strikes now, we'll take it out of technology funds. Do you know what? I've heard that so many times in my career and it was nothing to do with strikes then. They just, I think they're somewhat unimaginative. So I'd like to see in the future, we come up with methodology and I am trying to raise this with some senior people in the NHS. Let's work with companies who are prepared to charge for things in different ways because we have capital budgets and OPEX budgets about how we, we buy things. I also think there's a lot of technology that's paid for today in our health and care system that's probably inefficient and overpriced because it has had a 20, 30 year lifespan and there's been an RPI uplift all the time. Actually, you know, there's probably an opportunity here to remove some of that, use existing revenues, and replace that with newer technologies that do smarter things and that can be used in a wider area. So I think what we need to do is not just be paying the bills and using what we've got, but have a look at what we've got and say, is there something out there that's sharper? That's what I'd really love to see happen. And in 2024, so we've got some big programs going on. We've got frontline digitization. We've now got federated data platform. I really think there are some gaps that particularly small to medium enterprises can fill really quickly with new charging methodologies that they're prepared to use on a revenue basis. So you pay for things as you use them, not in the typical industry fashion, which is buy a license, pay up front, pay a support fee and implement. Actually, I think a lot of companies I'm talking to are prepared to go, no, no, we're prepared to stick around for a while. Let's meet the standards of a framework procurement, but actually we can do this on a maybe a per capita basis, a population basis. Let's make it fairer. Let's distribute that wealth a little bit more, but let's get things in and working faster. The shortage we have is people. 10% shortage of staff in the NHS and about 15% shortage of staff in care. So we've, whatever it is we have to do, we have to be mindful that it's got to be easy to go in. We've got to implement it swiftly. We, we can't rely on so much of our technology relies on the NHS saying, oh, yeah, we're going to put staff up. They're not there and it's going to be slow. So let's work, I would say, compassionately, uh, be listening be mindful of the environment that we're working in, that it is under pressure. It's been under sustained pressure now for nearly seven years. And the shortages are getting worse, but the workload is going up. And the people who are involved in that work, they are, I mean, I think they're the gods. They're the heroes, Douglas. They won't want to be called that. But they're the people who go in, for, you know, I know you said be quick, but I can't help but tell this story. My wife has a dear, dear friend. And she's a cleaner in the school. And she wouldn't mind me telling this story. She's 79. She does two shifts at the local district general hospital a week at 79. And she does a Sunday shift from 8 a.m. till 8 p.m. She's 79, just had a hip replaced. And they asked her if she could go in two hours earlier to start at 6 a.m. on a Sunday because they're short-staffed. And I think, and she's, a, she's, she's an ordinary nurse on the ward at 79. Is that, is that, is that right? Are we, are we that short? You know, so what can we, how can we alleviate things? Let's open our minds and those of our friends who are using technology or in the health environment, let's help them open their minds. To me, this is going back to what I said. It's not about selling. 
It's not about buying, it's about educating people on choices that they can make and get them involved and enthused. And I do believe that if you are if you are enthused and it's the right thing and you involve people, then your success rate goes up, your happiness rate goes up, you get through the workload better, and actually everybody wins. It's much better life. Wow. Wow. I can see why you're a mentor. And um, yeah, I can see that. And also, um, last question, and this is the bonus one. When you are such a cal- colourful character, or such a unique individual, you've got gravitas, you know, you, 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 the package is there. Do you find it equally being a challenge to your uh, mentees that they try to be Shane version 1.2 instead of being themselves? I don't... Th- Look, firstly, I'm going to say this. You said some very kind things, Douglas. I don't see... Me, I don't understand what other people see. I, I, I genuinely don't. I know I have some strengths, but like when I chair the council, because I've chaired it a lot, even as vice chair, people say, you know, thanks for the chairing that you've done. I'm like, I have no idea what it's like to be chaired by me. And I, therefore, I don't know what it's like to be mentored by me. But I don't think people say, I want to be like that guy. I hope what I do is I give them vignettes or a chapter. I hope when, you know, some people says to me, have you always been like this? And I go, no, no, no. I have been insecure. I have cried my eyes out. I have been terrified for years. I have felt physically sick and I get upset every day. And it's not that I hide it. I've started to write about some of some of the things, but I don't think they would want to be me and I would never want somebody to be me. But I have heard somebody say to me, Oh yeah, I was in this in, I was in this boardroom and this chairman wasn't adding value, so I got a bit shany with him. I said, "Well, I'm not sure what that is, but I take it as a compliment. And if it's how you feel, then that's what matters." And Douglas, you know, I'll take a bit of Douglas away tonight. And I think whether you're reading a book or you're watching a film or you've let you've watched somebody tell, just take the bits that mean something to you, but always be yourself. But you know, you yeah, genuinely you've said some lovely kind things, but I have no idea what it's like to uh and i never watch these things back or listen to them back really i've got to be honest because, oh i can't i can't better it myself. <laughs> not at all really no no I, I cringe i just cringe yeah you know what i, I used best, to be like that best, the best thing i think douglas the best thing you can say to somebody is just be yourself and i think the one thing i would say is i do cringe every day and I think, oh, God, that's hard. Oh, it's going to be awful. But I'm going to do it anyway and see what happens. And, you know, maybe 65% of the time it's okay. <laughs> no, no, I think it's a beautiful thing because it, as a, I, I'm a very visual person as well. So I like to draw upon a council of elders when I'm in a, in a jam or when I feel I don't have enough confidence, you know, and I, and I go on my um, virtual walk on the beach in my council of elders could have Nelson Mandela this side. I could have Bill Gates on that side. I could have, and I imagine what they what they will be saying if I go to them for my problem. I say like, Bill, you know what? This is this is what's happening here. You know, um, how will he respond to me? You know, my council of elders. You know, I even got you back there. I put you back in there last week because <laughs> I need a bit I need a bit of humor. So sometimes you need, you know. <laughs> It's it's flattery, but I think the whole point of knowledge, I guess, is so people don't have to make the same mistakes and know that it's okay. This has been this has been tried and it has been a tested um, thing because the the, the 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 thin line between mentoring and say coaching somebody 
So you throw it back. You know, you got to find your own voice. You got to do that. But when we mentor, like, in the health tech space, you have to look for somebody that is in a position that you aspire to be like, who's gone. So you can't help sometimes. I felt it when I was mentored a long time ago, but I was mentored by a woman who she was an investment banker, Angela, big up Angela. So um, I was terrified of her, absolutely terrified of her. But I found myself, I found myself copying her, her traits. Can I just say, just to say one thing, you just put it on the head there and it's just been mindful. It, whatever it is that I am today, and I don't know what that is, but I will say this, it is absolutely true that when you're scared, whether somebody has scared you because you've had to raise your game. I've got some people around me and they just make me want to be a better person. But it is the toughest of times. It is being away from your family for months on end. It is getting up in the middle of the night and not going back to your bed until the next middle of the night. It is being scared out of your wits. That's, that's where you grow. It's not outside your comfort zone. It is being scared out of your wits and pushing yourself. And I would say this, nobody ever said, I wish I never went on that walk. And it's what I see is when you go for a challenge of a new thing, it's kind of like, do you know what? When you get to the other side of it, you go, you never really go, I wish I'd never done it. Because you kind of get the other side of it. And it's like walking up a mountain in the Lake District. You get to the top. And by golly, that last bit is really hard. But by golly, when you get there, the view is awesome. And when you get down at the bottom and you think, oh, man, that was something else. That is what a challenge is. Get outside your comfort zone on something worthwhile, something that's bigger than you. And therefore, it's, it's, you're not frightened because it's about the mission. Just pick something you love and you're passionate about and do it for other people. Do it for the people that you adore and you love, whether they're here with you now or whether they're, in, they're somebody that loved, that's no longer here for you. Find that. that. That will take you anywhere, my friend. Well, wow. There's, there's no better way to close. <laughs> There's no better way to close. That's a mic drop to close. That's one of the epic closes I've ever had. All I would say is, Shane, keep doing uh, with the great work that you're doing. You know, the listeners, you know, follow Shane on LinkedIn. Is just just see what this this individual is doing. There are some bright, brilliant minds out there, and a lot of clinicians are are are, are despondent. We're burnt out. You know, we've, we've had the talk. We've had so much tech that's failed. You know, the graveyard of techs in, is in most um, hospitals, but now there are going to be solutions. And I tell people all the time, leverage AI for yourself as, as your little co-pilot, you know, just to give yourself, you know, five minutes extra of your children, you know, that's what it can do for you. And then keep pushing that way. And and again, the work you're doing at universities as well, honorary lecturer, you know, there's a big piece around re-educating the educators. It's so, so important because... I know when I was trained, I wasn't trained to do, be re do record keeping. However, how many nurses now, doctors, social workers, allied health professionals are being trained around AI in that space? You know, so there's this, there's a bigger piece. And, and, and I'm so glad that you're on that mission, you know, moving that direction. You need that's right. Encourage people. Encourage people. What more can you do? Because I think we're at the foothills and that ambient gathering of information and what can it automatically go and do for you? Yeah, it's so exciting. Yeah, we're at the precipice. I feel like we're about to jump. Uh, I feel like right. humanity is about to make a big jump. Like literally like, just holding our breath and we're about to and nobody knows what the free fall is gonna be like. I just feel like uh, 
I hope we're wise enough, though, not to waste this opportunity and use it for good, because we can take the entire population. You know, there's still a billion people out there without clean water. There's hundreds of millions of people without sanitation. There's, you know, millions of people less, less than $2 a day. So, you know, whatever we're doing here in the UK, and it's not, it's not in different continents, we have that poverty here as well. Let's take people with us. And, and, you know, it's not about what we can keep to and gather for ourselves. What can you give that probably costs you nothing, that knowledge, that, that inspiration, that courage to give somebody to, to do something? Douglas, I have to thank you for this opportunity uh, because it's inspiring talking to you and, and your own work and the things that you do, you know, really make me quite emotional as well. And, you know, you're an inspiration to me. So thank you very much to, to, for letting me talk to you. But um, you're the man. <laughs> no, no, thank you very much. Yeah, you. Uh, it's a big tick of a bucket list, and I, and I think I'm gonna keep going back to the bucket. So, no, Shane, uh, I look forward to catching up with you in 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 real FaceTime in, in in the physical and just chopping up with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, keep going. For spending keep your time. Have things. a great afternoon, evening, and fantastic. Okay, Christmas. guys, everybody ready? Yeah, you too, my friend. You too. Take care. Look after yourself. Nice Cheers. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out micdropclub.com and get the show notes and useful links. Subscribe to the podcast. Don't just live life, make life boom.